3: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine, analyse diplomatic developments as more European countries consider closing their borders with Russia, and we hear about life in Kharkiv, training Ukrainian troops as winter closes in. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 23rd of November. One year and 272 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and our guest is Daniel Ridley, a former Ukrainian Marine and founder of the Trident Defence Initiative. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine.
0: Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Lots of bits and pieces today, so I'll rattle through, if I may. Let's start um, with Russian attacks across Ukraine, mainly through the centre and down the south, but a a wide-ranging area, have killed and injured civilians in the past 24 hours. This comes from regional governors in Hezon, and it's thought the attacks there in in Hezon region, just north of the city, were thought to have included cluster munitions. But also the regional governors in uh, Dinovich, Propetrovsk, Kharkiv, and Donetsk. So the centre, east, and south, but a very large swathe. Mainly shelling, it's thought, in those and the areas closest to the line of contact, as you'd expect. But uh, no real update on the nature of the ammunition used. Separately, European Council President Charles Michel said that Ukraine's counteroffensive has not failed. So in an interview with the Kiev Independent, he said. I don't think this counteroffensive has failed. Firstly, how the Ukrainian army made huge progress in the Black Sea, I think, well, maybe army, navy, it's all the same, is extremely important. This is a major step in the right direction. Secondly, the recent progress made on the left side of the Dnipro River is also very important. I mean, I said in last week's Defence In Depth video that, you know, I, I don't know if we should get hung up on whether the counteroffensive has started, stopped, failed, succeeded, what have you. I think the point I was making is, War doesn't really work like that. It doesn't work like that. On, this this is a failure. Let's all go home. You know, you've got to look at war more broadly. So whilst the land campaign has not got anywhere near the geographic objectives that Ukraine would have been hoping for, and there's no denying that, but Ukraine would have learned a huge amount about force integration, training, lots of other lessons in command and control from the counteroffensive. So it, my view is that it's irrelevant to talk about whether it's failed, or not. If you, you know, it's not going forwards, but it's certainly not going back. It, it has culminated to use the military expression, which means you're exhausted, basically, either physically exhausted or, or in terms of logistics. So you're not you're not necessarily being pushed back, but you're you're no longer you no longer have the oomph to go forwards. So I think it's a bit of a moot point as to whether or not you take your. You take your view view if it's failed or succeeded. I think those are irrelevant terms. But um, just have a look at the war more broadly and see what's happening in the Black Sea, see what's happening politically, internationally, as well as domestically. But we note Charles Michel's words and uh, move on. Next one. Former Wagner Group fighters, for the first time, have been officially recognised as Russian veterans. This is according to Britain's MOD. Now, what they call, uh, so this is the, the Brits, what they call a select group, of, uh, of Wagner fighters were issued official veteran ID documents on the 14th of November and are now able to receive commensurate bonuses. Um, Britain's MOD said this highly likely signals the rehabilitation of some Wagner elements by the Russian administration. You'll remember it was the announcement in June this year by the MOD, Russian MOD, that all private military companies and what have you, mercenary groups, were going to come under their wing, under the official Russian MOD organization that then started the whole spat with Prigozhin and ended up in the um, in the in the dash dash to victory or mutiny no bounty as uh, I think Lisa gave us that expression I'm sorry if I'm completely using it out of context anyway the Wagner group has now been subsumed into Russia's National Guard since the since the failed coup um, and the perhaps not so mysterious demise of Yevgeny of, uh, Prigozhin and another another four or five senior wagner figures in the uh, in the plane explosion but it, it looks as if now this is wagner as we remember it has gone it still exists as a as a kind of entity as a wrapper, but it's it's now probably within the russian mod organization chart the fact they're now being recognized and paid part of it was that they weren't recognized as veterans and hence paid either pensions or their family members if they were killed given any kind of financial compensation that was one of the grievances that, that Prigozhin had that now seems so they seem to have they've seemed to have got over that so I think we we will hear from the Wagner group again probably internationally as well but actually it's not it's nothing like the in the shape that it uh, that it was before. Now, yesterday, our foreign reporter, Maiden Nanu, was talking about Putin's appearance at the virtual G20 summit. He used the his speech yesterday afternoon that hadn't happened by the time we um, we released the episode, but he used his speech at the G20 to talk about, um, well, to call for peace and all the rest of it. The Institute for the Study of War has done some analysis on it and said it's all it's all false. His supposed endeavours pushing for peace are all, all a sham and probably aimed more at trying to split the Western or external supporters for Ukraine those that, that are more likely to say, yeah, actually, we should give peace a chance and push Zelensky for negotiations and, and what have you. So ISW is saying that Kremlin officials have pushed the narrative of peace talks Whilst claiming that Ukraine is unwilling to negotiate with Russia, likely to coerce Western officials into prematurely offering concessions favourable to Russia rather than engage in meaningful good faith negotiations, they uh, they said a premature cessation of hostilities in Ukraine greatly increases the likelihood of renewed Russian aggression on terms far more favourable to the Kremlin in the near future. I.e., it won't be the end of it. They will take a pause, regroup, build up, and and go again, which I think is is sensible sensible assessment Ukraine has has said it will negotiate with Russia when all Russian forces are removed uh, from the internationally recognised territory of Crimea the Donbass and the rest of the occupied territories ok moving on, Russian defence spending um, is expected to increase to a third of the entire budget in 2024, that will be a record level, that is um, from uh, Russian outlet uh, Medusa. Uh, and then next one President Zelensky has talked about, somewhat, in somewhat sort of opaque terms, talked about the formation of a 20-country Western coalition to strengthen Ukraine's air defences. So he said yesterday, not everything can be disclosed publicly at this time, but the Ukrainian air shield is becoming stronger every month. Now, we think Germany and France are going to be leading the effort, and we think it came out of the latest round of the Ramstein group. Remember the... Um, so US Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's initiative the Ramstein group which is mainly military aid to Ukraine rather than humanitarian or just financial support there was a virtual meeting i think yesterday and we believe that it, that it came out of came out of there but quite what this air shield is and whether or not it, it is a further development or deepening of um Ukraine's emerging air defense system which is mainly built around Western kit or you know, kit that's in operation with NATO members. The more that docks with NATO's existing air air shield, then then that would be even you know, short of NATO membership. That that is quite some um, that, that is a, a significant development in terms of air defences for for Ukraine. And then just finally, news that's coming out uh, that's coming out this morning. Actually, Poland has charged a group of sixteen foreigners with espionage after it shut down a Russian spy ring earlier. This year so officials in Warsaw made the announcement yesterday and um, Poland's interior minister Mariusz Kaminski who oversees Poland's internal security agency released a statement saying charges have been filed against 16 foreigners thought to be Ukrainians, Russians and people from Belarus 16 foreigners accused of conducting espionage activities on behalf of Russian intelligence services on Polish territory and participating in an organised criminal group. Their assigned tasks included identifying military facilities and critical infrastructure, monitoring and documenting trains, transporting military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine, and preparing for train derailments. Now, Polish radio station RMF FM, they um, had reported that six people were detained on suspicion of having installed secret cameras to film transport infrastructure used to deliver aid to Ukraine. I think those six were um, arrested back in March. Uh, but, uh, the, the R- 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 RMF, excuse me, FM, said the group had installed dozens of cameras beside railway junctions and important transport routes in areas bordering Ukraine. Some were found near the Rezhov airport. That's about 100 K's from, from the Ukraine border. Uh, that had been... A, a small regional airport, but is now it's now been converted into a major international logistics hub and one of the main hubs through which military aid and humanitarian aid is is delivered to Ukraine. It is very significant. U.S. Patriot air Defe- defense systems are there on the airfield to protect it. It's where Joe Biden flew into on his recent visit um, to Kiev. So, Rozov is is, a, is very much part of the um, the effort to get military aid into into Ukraine. Now, the spy ring, as I said, initially broken up in March and investigations since then have identified more on top of the the initial six individuals. Citizens of Ukraine, Belarus and Russia have all pleaded guilty. They could face, uh, we believe, charges or sorry, could face up to um, 10 years in prison. The Office of the Coordinator of Poland's Security Services, Stanislav Zarin, said in a statement, all defendants admitted to committing the acts they were accused of and voluntarily submitted to punishment, which sounds Sounds pretty painful. Uh, And that's it. I'll
3: take a break there, David. Thank you very much, Tom, for all of that. Joe Barnes, can I come to you uh, next on the diplomatic and political updates? It's very, very good to see you, Joe. Welcome to London. Uh, Thank you. And yeah, good to see some faces rather than uh, speaking down a telephone to you all. Yeah, so let's
1: start with Vladimir Putin. He has arrived in Belarus for the first time in 11 months. Uh, Belarus neighbouring Russia and Ukraine and is seen as Russia's most closest ally in the region. It was used as a springboard a staging post for the invasion the one of the initial attacks on kiev came via via that point and the russian president is participating in a what's known as a collective security treaty organization summit with alexander lukashenko who is the belarusian dictator alliance members include armenia kazakhstan kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. which is just interesting to see how you can see the regional power blocks playing out and where they are um, then let's move to Italy and Germany have signed up to build a new gas and h- hydrogen pipeline across the Alps and that is in a bid to shore up energy supplies in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine. Um, that was announced on Wednesday by Olaf Schultz and Giorgio Maloney, the German and Italian leaders. So mainly since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine, Germany has been incredibly anxious about its supplies of gas mainly from Russia where it had very cheap pipeline gas via Nord Stream pumped into it, which fuelled its car factories and industry and basically made it sort of a massive player. Uh, But that is now all disappearing and Germany is looking to diversify away. So the proposed pipeline will bring supplies from North Africa up through Italy, across Austria and into southern Germany. It's going to be able to enable the import of about 10 million tonnes of hydrogen by 2030. That's according to German media reports. This is what Olaf Scholz had to say. We agree that we want to expand our energy cooperation in order to strengthen long-term supplier security and transformation with a new pipeline across the Alps. We want to increase the security of supply of both of our countries. At the same time, we want to quickly conclude a German-Italian gas and solidarity agreement. So we're actually North Africa is a great hub and sort of one of those areas that everyone is going to for fossil fuels, mainly gas supplies, in the wake of diversifying and cutting away from russian tires so geography dictates that that is one of the areas that that will travel for and it's good to see germany are doing more to cut away from its old reliances uh, let's go to the norwegian and swedish borders so norway estonia um sorry norway and estonia so not sweden um will look to follow suit uh, with Finland in closing their borders with Russia. So Helsinki has completely closed its border with Moscow um, after a surge of illegal migration, which it has accused uh, Russia of orchestrating. So if you if we go back, it was, oh, blimey, when I first started at the Telegraph over two years ago. We were looking at um, migration through Belarus uh, into the likes of Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, and it was mainly what Europeans said was state-coordinated. So Belarus was putting migrants from Africa, from the Middle East, Afghanistan, etc., on buses and taking them to the borders with the EU and then pushing them across into Europe. And that was said to have been organised through Russia as a way of destabilising the West. So now we have seen what looks like an uptick in that over the last few weeks, and governments are taking action. So Norwegian Prime Minister Jonas Garstor on Wednesday said that he would do the same, that's close the borders if necessary. And as I said, Finland has accused Russia of doing that. Uh, But let's go to the Netherlands, where we've got overnight the election results there, and a slightly shocking win for Gert Wilders is the far-right anti-Islamic firebrand leader. His um, PVV party has won the Dutch national elections. Well, when I say won, it's fallen very short of majority, but he has the most seats, 35. So it currently leaves Gert Wilders in pole position to form the coalition government. It's going to be a tall order because the guy is mightily controversial and how many kind of mainstream Dutch politicians are going to want to get into bed with someone who is called Moroccan scum and try to push anti-Islam policies such as banning the Quran Islam faith schools banning mosques etc obviously this is Ukraine the latest I'll stick to where the result could impact Ukraine in the future so the Dutch has been a great donor to Ukraine so far we look at the Patriot missile systems uh Leopard tanks um, and the Dutch are actually leading the F-16 fighter jet coalition uh, to looking at getting F-16s into Ukraine's air force by next year. But Wilders Wilders, has called for an end to that military and weapons support for Ukraine, arguing that the, the Netherlands needs those weapons more for its own security. And while Wilders and his party have denounced the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they have actually questioned the Western alliances with Kyiv and the crackdown on Russia through sanctions. Uh, so there is essentially falling in line with this idea that, look, while we support Ukraine, we shouldn't do much to support it in practice because it hurts our country through sanctions. It's sort of, sort of the same line that Hungary takes, uh, Slovakia is taking, the Polish government before. Donald Tusk one said, look, let's keep our weapons because we need them domestically now. Uh, so it's that sort of mentality. But there's also a pledge that Gert Wilders and his party are massive Eurosceptics. They have a sort of a nexit policy. They want to take the Netherlands out of the EU. But in the meantime, they want to block any new members from joining the EU. So that includes Ukraine, whose decision on future membership talks comes up uh, on the table next month at a Brussels summit. But then actually looking back at sort of Gert Wilder's attacks with Russia, he might he might have denounced the invasion of Crimea and the invasion of the full-scale invasion. But historically, there has been ties between the Kremlin and these his party. So some Ukrainian hackers earlier this year actually managed to find some documents and leak them online that demonstrated the Kremlin attempting to forge ties with Wilder's PVV party since 2013 One example of that, a far-right Russian MP going by the name of Slutsky, he organised for PVV MEP, Andrei Alitin to visit Moscow in 2017, and I used the bunny ears to observe the Russian elections, yeah, if dictators need observing, that's sort of great fun. In 2018, Gert Wilders himself visited the Russian capital, a trip which was organised by Slutsky, and at the time... Wilders, Wilders was claiming that his visit was to keep the dialogue open after Russia annexed Crimea and after the downing of flight MH17 over Ukraine which killed a lot of Dutch people uh, so Wilders did not personally comment on that visit and let's um, let's move on to another European Union decision, while it's loosely connected to Ukraine it's actually looking at the possibility of how do we Weaken Hungary's opposition to Ukraine being given access to formal membership talks, and so the European Union has approved a fund of about eight hundred million pounds, so about a million euros, million, a billion, billion euros, billion dollars, in funding um, under the Repower EU schemes. That's sort of looking at how do we help countries move on to better post-Soviet. Power grids, transition to renewable energy, etc. Move away from Russian fossil fuels. And the commission has basically given Hungary's plan the legal go-ahead, and that's going to be voted on by member states in due course. But what we do is we have to look at the what's happening in Hungary. So Viktor Orbán on Wednesday said that the EU should not omit Ukraine um, until it undertakes a few a full review of its strategy of support for Kiev, and that includes a strategic look at what's happening on the battlefield. Uh, so Viktor Orban is in a constant sort of standoff with Brussels. And if you speak to EU officials, they believe that Viktor Orban is using Ukraine and the EU support for Ukraine as leverage in order to unlock some sort of 13 billion euros in funding that is due to Hungary under another another banner. So it's, is this potentially the first bit of bait that we are seeing from, uh, from the EU to get a positive message from Hungary when it comes to that vote?
3: next month and i'll stop there for now well thank you very much joe and dom for all of that well it's great daniel ridley to have you back on the podcast could you remind our listeners just quickly where you are and what you do
2: yep thank you very much for having me back it's good to be back in i think this is the third or fourth time now Uh, I'm currently based in Kharkiv, which is in the far northeast of Ukraine, and I run an organization called Trident Defense Initiative. We are a military training center slash organization for the Ukrainian armed forces, and we've so far trained 11,000 Ukrainian soldiers free of charge in a variety of different skills, uh, infantry, medical, drones, engineering, and a few others, to say the least.
3: Well, Daniel, we've heard a lot from Joanne Dom about some of the updates from around Europe and around the world. What about for you? You're in Kharkiv. What's the atmosphere like there? Can you give us an idea of what you're seeing? What are people telling you? And with, with winter arriving, how are you preparing for that?
2: Yep, so the, uh, I've been in Kharkiv well over a year now, coming up to a year and a half. Situations consistently got better and better, especially during the counter-offensive in Kharkiv last year, where the vast majority of Kharkiv Oblast was liberated from the Russians, and the, the sort of semi-encirclement they had around the city was pushed back. The situation has got, you know, incredibly more secure in Kharkiv. Uh, A lot of people have returned here. Uh, You know, it's very close to the Russian border, uh, less than 30 kilometers away from the Russian border. Um, And then also the frontline situation east of Kharkiv. So, you know, it's got a lot more of a a higher level of threat than most cities in Ukraine. Uh, But at the same time, it's Ukraine's second largest city. So it has a lot of of life to it and a lot of people that live here. So, yeah, the situation has got more secure. Uh, In the last few weeks, we've seen a sort of upscale of the Iranian-made uh Shahid drone attacks uh, which are predominantly used to wear down Ukraine's air defenses they've never really been traditionally used in Kharkiv due to its close proximity to the border they've normally just used the S300 uh, anti-aircraft missile which they deploy in a ground to ground role but they've uh, they've there's been an upsurge of it in the last few weeks hitting specific targets but also just sort of to drain Ukraine's air defenses in this area uh, I would assume that is in preparation for what everyone's been talking about recently, which is a renewed uh, winter strikes that will attack Ukraine's infrastructure, predominantly the energy infrastructure and sort of uh, damage uh, people's ability to heat their homes or to live comfortably through the winter, and put more pressure on Ukraine and, and also the Europeans. Uh, but yeah, so we've seen, we've seen a lot of that, but again, the, uh, life has returned to the city. Things are very busy here. Uh, so people definitely feel more secure than they did before, uh, in regards to preparing for the winter, uh, this will be technically you could say the third winter of the war. The war began at the end of winter, 2022, and then we had the end of 2022 the winter where it was sort of the first long winter that we'd had here. Ukraine was prepared, but things were difficult. You know, we had power outages that lasted anywhere between three to five days. People individually in their homes and things were not prepared. But I would say now Ukraine is is definitely far more prepared in regards to air defences, in regards to infrastructure and their ability to repair infrastructure. Uh, last year, they were absolutely fantastic. Sort of the unsung heroes of this war have been Ukraine's infrastructure workers. The power stations or the power grids where they work would be hit. And moments later, they would be in there trying to repair them. Sorry, trying to repair them. Um, and and the individual Ukrainian, I would say they're far more prepared this year. You just can see on Ukrainian internet stores and stuff that the purchases of power banks and gas heaters and things are through the roof. People know what's most likely going to come. It's already sort of started. I know Kharkiv was hit quite bad with Shahid drones in the last few weeks. And then, as, as Dom mentioned, uh, over the last few days, a huge number of Shahids have been fired towards Kiev. Again, these aren't necessarily to hit something or strike something. They're just there to to wear down Ukraine's limited stock of air defense missiles and air defense systems. So, yeah, overall, in general, people are, are definitely more prepared for the winter, and they sort of expect the inevitable, which is which is coming.
3: Well, thank you so much for all of that. Dan, you talked about the training programs you run. Could you just share a little bit about how your training has changed through the year? I mean, the, this war has been, the full-scale invasion has been going on for 20 months, 21 months now. How has what you do and how has what you teach the soldiers changed with, with the ebb and flow of the fighting?
2: Yes, yeah, so I, I covered this briefly the last time I was on a few months ago uh, in the, the height of Ukraine's summer counteroffensive. But the training... Uh, We provide a standardised outline of training courses, a variation of training programmes, but every single one of those is adaptive, depending on which brigade or which which individual unit we're training. So as you said, with the, the ebb and flow of the war, some some areas or sometimes it can be defensive or, you know, uh, in an assaulting posture, especially during the counteroffensive, offensive which, which hasn't just been limited to the south. There's also been counter-offensive operations uh, going on in, in Kupiansk, uh, in Bakhmut, and the area around that as well. And that has sort of tailored our training. It's definitely over the last few months, we've been focused more on going forward. And as we come closer to the winter, it's more about, staying in place and holding uh as much as everyone would like it to uh, it is near impossible i i myself spent almost 20 months in a trench in the east of ukraine prior to the full-scale invasion during the the period of war before that and i i did uh, two or even even three winters the way it worked out in the trenches can get down to the worst was minus 27 you're not doing anything then and neither are the enemy it's very difficult conditions to move equipment to move men to motivate men so you know definitely in the winter uh, fighting season which is standard for for most conflict zones uh, the, the fighting slows down so as we as we get closer to that the training definitely is tailored more uh, towards offensive obviously we train predominantly students in and around in the greater area of harkiv region so our main focus is Kupyansk and, and Batmood sectors. Uh, and the, the situation there is, is definitely tailored more towards the defence. So, yeah, we, we've, had a, we've had a change, change the flow of it over the last, well, coming up to two years now. But again, we have a consistent baseline training programme that we sort of adhere to, which provides a standard for the soldiers.
3: Dan, you shared some of your experiences in the trenches. Would you like to share any other, other stories of some of the soldiers you've seen and trained over, over the past few months? Um, who sticks in your mind?
2: uh yeah i think a good person to mention is one of our students his name is max burger uh, if people view our instagram page you can be found for our website we have a great video that he made for us on there he's a ukrainian but he lived in barcelona before the full scale invasion at uh, the beginning of the full scale invasion he came back he was an artist came back to ukraine and joined the military and, and found himself in one of the Kharkiv territorial defense brigades i would say Maybe seven or eight months ago now, he attended our Batu Medics course, which is a three-week course, very in-depth, covers quite high-level medical procedures and trauma care, including a cadaver lab, quite a unique course. He attended that course, no prior medical experience, no medical training other than the very basic training he had as an infantry soldier. He completed our course. He was a, he was a star student, even helped uh, with the translation as he spoke fluent English. He graduated the course and was almost immediately sent to Bakhmood, and I believe he went did at least three rotations in the town or the city of Batmood itself inside of there during the, the height of the battles. And he he was great. He he wore a GoPro. He recorded a lot of the footage. And he used our training and the equipment we provide all of our graduating students that pass our tests. We provide them with a fully stocked medical rucksack with everything they need to save lives in it. And he recorded some great videos. He treated, I think, anywhere between 70 or 80 casualties during his time in and out of Batmood. Uh, and that was all down, completely down to the training that he received with us. Uh, yeah. And he, he was a fantastic guy. Like I said, he was a, he was an artist before the war lived outside of Ukraine at the, at the time came back and and went into what he describes as the, the hell of Batmood multiple times. And he's, you know, one of thousands of stories of our students that we've managed to help and hopefully they continue to save lives and preserve lives and and defend Ukrainian territory.
3: Well thank you so much Dan I'm going to hand over to Dom and Joe now I've just got one more question but I know Joe's been writing quite a bit on some aspects of the Ukrainian army in the past few days so Joe Barnes.
1: Hi Dan uh, good to hear from you mate and yeah say enjoying your uh, photos in the snow of Kharkiv on Instagram I don't know if I I won't share your your handle um, but (laughs) they're good to see. What's quite interesting so the, the the Wall Street Journal the other day published a story, and they they featured a, a quote from a retired Ukrainian lieutenant general, which said units on the front line are now common, commonly twenty to forty percent below strength. Essentially, as uh, Ukraine struggles to replace infantry that has been lost during the summer counteroffensive, so I was just wondering if is that reflected in the number of people you're training? Are you training more people, or, or are Ukraine actually struggling to find uh, new recruits and people? uh to sign up to the military to to serve from now on
2: i i definitely wouldn't disagree with that fact um but uh even when i served in the ukrainian military we had issues with manpower in regards to me personally and the the soldiers and the the students i interact with i haven't seen a, a drop in numbers if anything we've actually seen an increase in numbers we've expanded our organization quite drastically over the past six months so uh, within that you know our numbers have, have been reflected so but definitely i think there was well there was a lot of issues uh at the beginning of the mobilization you know ukraine you know people may disagree with it uh, within Ukraine and outside of Ukraine, but Ukraine is in a total war. Uh, wh- whether we like it or not, we didn't make this decision. As as is Russia on the on the other side. So within that, you know, it comes with mobilization, a draft, whatever you want to call it. That's that's unavoidable. But everyone, you know, I believe everyone has a, a commitment to contribute to the defence of their country. But yeah, there was there was definitely issues at the beginning for the first year, year and a half of the war with the mobilisation and also the recruitment. I know Ukraine is definitely moving forward with that now. Recently, Zelensky restructured all of the recruitment and the mobilization centers. Restructured the command structure there and the recruiting procedures there. And then also, I believe Ukraine is moving towards more of a modern standard of Uh, Volunteer recruitment as well. I believe there's uh, one of our partners, actually an organization called Lobby X. They basically advertise job roles within the military, within specific units. And what they will do is they will offer those positions out to Ukrainian citizens that they can then apply to join so they can find a more uh, specific role within the military tailored for them. Uh, it's definitely something that 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 has time to come. Uh, obviously, the conditions for a Ukrainian soldier. You know, I, I have a biased opinion. I won't deny that. Uh, But the conditions for a Ukrainian soldier are far more desirable than for a Russian mobilized soldier. That's apparent. You know, you can see anything of the conditions that Russian mobilized soldiers live in and also how they're treated um, is definitely not reflected in in even 10 percent of how a Ukrainian soldier is treated. You know, we provide a large bulk of post training. I know the Ukrainian military has its own initial training centers and things like that. But the standards definitely improving. The Ukrainian, whatever the Russian propaganda says, or the anti-help Ukraine, Western media or propaganda, whatever you want to call it, says uh, the Ukrainian population is still very motivated. I I would say there's definitely could be more people signing up. But again, I haven't seen a deficit. I haven't seen a worrying problem uh, where I think, God, we need more people. We haven't got enough people. We haven't got enough uh, men on the line holding the line. That's definitely not an issue as of now.
1: And then Dom and I were having a conversation on Monday's pod about sort of the use of tourniquets, and you—I actually used you uh, as an example because you—I think you had been posting on about sort of tourniquets being used too sort of liberally, and it's causing sort of people to have amputations that weren't needed. Um, just wondering if you do you see the the sacking and the the of the head of the medical forces and the bid to. Bring this up to a better standard. Do you see this as a positive from a guy? I've seen you in action, seen you guys in action at TDI, and we we did a piece. Uh, when was it? Last June, uh, which is on the website still for people to look at. So we know that you sort of deliver great training, but do you actually see now an, a need to sort of bring that level of training up elsewhere? And do you sort of agree with that in in general?
2: Yes, it's actually one of our main focuses and obviously as the war goes on, Ukrainians uh, become more knowledgeable about the specifics of of combat and tactics than a Western instructor would. We we have a large amount of Western instructors, but also Ukrainian instructors. but tactical medicine is always something that we sort of uh, is our is our sort of big thing. We run three different levels of medical training here, varying lengths and in depth uh, in depthness. And yeah, I, I made a post on it recently. It's been a it's been a controversy and something that's been spoken about a lot in Ukraine since the beginning of the war was the fake tourniquet issue. Uh, you know, people just being do-gooders, especially outside of Ukraine, were looking to send support and aid. So they would go on Amazon and, oh, everyone needs a tourniquet. You know, it's the first thing you use, the most important thing you use. And they would go on Amazon and type in tourniquet, and, you know, uh, a million results would pop up. Oh, you can get 100 of these tourniquets for only $2 a piece. They said, that's great, I can get 100 tourniquets. But the reality is they were Chinese, fake copies, airsoft copies, whatever, and and they were a big issue. It's sort of become a bit of a beating a dead horse thing now. You know, we're seeing a, a bit of an improvement with it especially it's gone on for a long time now this controversy and soldiers are identifying which is a fake which isn't but yeah the, the thing that's been coming across a lot lately i've seen it personally during my work in the morgue with the medical course and then also the thing that i posted about recently on on instagram was was yeah the over usage of tourniquets people were Getting, you know, the the tourniquet is the most important thing. As soon as you see blood, put a tourniquet on. And then people were just applying them everywhere. They would see blood, put them on. And unfortunately, if a tourniquet is applied for an extended period of time, you will lose that limit. Effectively cuts off blood flow, turns the blood toxic, and you're having a lot of unnecessary amputations, including people I know have had it. That's not necessarily an issue with, let's say, the hospital. You know, the hospitals aren't just lopping legs off willy-nilly. The issue is predominantly the application point. People are putting it on and then... Just because of the war situation in Ukraine, for a multitude of reasons that you know, I won't go too in-depth into, uh, evacuation takes over an hour, over what we call, and Dom knows about it, what we call the golden hour, um, which is if you get someone to a hospital within an hour of being injured, they have a uh, much higher increased rate of survivability, and then everything after that uh, is far lower. In regards to the firing of the head of the Ukrainian military medical services, or the replacement, obviously, Zelensky's done a lot of shifting in his cabinet and in his positions. Some people have slipped under the radar and gone unnoticed. The main driving factor behind that was actually to do with blood transfusions, giving blood to injured soldiers. It's actually been illegal. Uh, I, I myself, also, when I served in the Ukrainian military, I, I attended the Ukrainian military's combat medic course, it was a four-month-long course, Ukrainian and Canadian military instructors, fantastic course. And we were specifically told there was a lot of illegal... Manipulations, life-saving manipulations that I personally knew how to do that I wasn't allowed to do. One of them was uh, blood transfusions, and it's become a big point of controversy because it's something that is is really needed uh, at the front line or in the rear stabilisation points. And it became a huge controversy. Ukrainian soldiers were crying out to be allowed to do it. They were getting qualified. Uh, there's courses, a lot of courses in different places. Some I know about some in Kiev, uh, where Ukrainian soldiers were either paying their own money or... Uh, Something else I don't agree with Ukrainian soldiers having to pay for training, but you know, whatever. We're going and getting these qualifications to deliver blood, to make blood transfusions, but we're being uh, disallowed by their command to do it. And I believe that was one of the driving factors, Ukraine's sort of military medical heads inability to change out of what maybe is Soviet practices or old Ukrainian practices and move forward into a more modern system of combat medical care. Ukraine uses the March standard, the March algorithm, which is the American American system and the T C guidelines. Ukraine has adapted those since 2017 when the, a lot of the foreign missions were training. Great system, very effective, but the problem is the Ukrainian legal system that backs that hasn't really adapted to change to that so so yeah hopefully we'll see uh, more of a modernization of it the volunteer networks volunteer medics here are very strong and very powerful and they always have been and they're pioneering a lot of things there's some great organizations out there hospitalers do some great work and and quite a few others uh so yeah hopefully seeing more of that and more modernization of it and hopefully the Zelensky government puts someone more modern more astute and more knowledgeable in frontline conditions in that position
0: Dan, hi, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us again. Welcome back. Can I ask you about the confidence with which Western donated equipment or externally donated equipment is being received by by um, new volunteers and soldiers with a bit more experience? I've heard anecdotally um, from people fighting in Ukraine that the N-Law has, has, in reputational terms, had a bit of a dip. And I'm told that this is because a lot of them were were flying over the targets, the BMPs and the tanks and what have you, and not exploding because the firer had not selected OTA, the overfly top attack mode of the, of the missile. And they'd been doing that because they'd either not been trained correctly or in the heat of the moment had, had forgotten their training. But it was leading to a loss of confidence in the weapon. Are you able to speak to that point specifically, but just more broadly, how is the equipment that's donated received in terms of confidence in the fighter's hands?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll speak, I think, specifically about the N-Law first. I've personally seen a lot less of them in Ukraine. I don't know how factual that is, just just what I visualised, less of the N-Law. Uh, I spoke about this, I think, on my very first podcast with you guys, was the, the propaganda weapons, the cool uh, wonder weapons that everyone speaks about, things like the Bayaktar, the javelin, and all these things. One thing that definitely went under the radar was the end law I would say it was... Without a doubt, the most effective weapon that saved saved the Russian advance on Kiev, Butcher uh, and Erpim, where where I was at the beginning of the war, because it was such an effective weapon. It was easy to use and it was, you know, one in law one Russian tank gone 100% of the time if you if you used it correctly I believe again just I'll just speak on what I know I believe that the Brits do a lot of training on the whether it's called orbital interflex I think it's called now and they do a lot of training on the n law as it's one of their standard weapons I've personally like I said seen less of them in Ukraine but maybe there's there's a, a larger number of them I don't know specifically Probably the issue is is, is throwing that training uh, out to a huge army that continuously is, is gaining new people, gaining new brigades, and then also refreshing that training as well. I'm not sure of the exact numbers I believe it's up to around twenty thousand now that have been through training specifically in the uk that you know that's a small number uh, that's a small number in, in regards to the entire Ukrainian military. So let's say twenty thousand of those guys have received n law training uh, you know how many of them are using it in law, and then how many others are using it that aren't getting it. Uh, We may also see quality deficiencies with the upsurge in need for equipment, and then obviously the sort of parallel conflict which affects Ukraine, which is the Israel-Palestine conflict. Maybe there's uh, uh, quality issues there, I'm not 100% sure. In regards to the general effectiveness of the Western weapons, something that sort of got uh, put down a lot at the beginning of the counteroffensive just because the Ukrainians weren't super experienced in what they were doing and there there was some learning kinks to work out was the Bradley you know, a few were lost at the beginning and weren't used necessarily effectively. uh, Now we're seeing that used a lot more effectively. Again, these things take time and people will need to understand that. A a soldier can go to the West for training. He can receive fantastic training specifically on that equipment. But again, he needs that experience of using it in combat. He needs that experience of using it when he's under fire, in terrain that he's gonna be under fire in, factor in things like FPV drones and, and, and other technology things. It takes time. And I think you mentioned it at the beginning as well. Ukraine is, uh, may not have had the success that it wanted or that the West expected it to have. But what it has had is a huge amount of experience, gain and knowledge of the equipment. So, yeah, I, I don't think the confidence in Western equipment has gone down. It's still just as desirable and just as effective as it was when it first
0: was received. Thanks, Dan. And just finally for me, you mentioned earlier on that, that you, you think Ukrainian soldiers, and I, I agree with you on this one, will endure the ravages of winter in the trenches, better than the Russian soldiers. Can you talk to us about the, the kind of standard kit that now they're now being issued? What, how widespread the, the good winter clothing is, and boots, and things like that, and, and how um, how well it, it, are, it, will everybody get it? Everybody get the good stuff at the at the front line to enable them to survive and and even possibly take take the fight to to the Russians. But just the, what 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 should be expected at the front in terms of winter gear for the individual?
2: I would say straight off the bat, it is, and even in the British Army, we know this far too well, winter gear and things like that are always the bane of corruption, whether it be low-level corruption, the quartermaster keeping all the good jackets in his stores, uh, or whether that be high-level a governmental level. You know, Ukraine has experienced that with winter gear in the past. I experienced it in the Ukrainian Army at a low level, but that, that, that's consistent with most militaries. That's just how things work sometimes. But, yeah, when I served in the Ukrainian military, I was issued... Uh, Pretty, pretty shockingly impressive set of winter equipment. You know, snow boots with gaiters on, thermal layers, multiple thermal layers, sort of soft suit, like a, almost like a wearable sleeping bag. Uh, in the Ukrainian camouflage, even winter boots, you know, we, we were issued all of that. And th- this is before the full-scale invasion when the Ukrainian army had nowhere near the amount of support and and equipment that it had. What I'm seeing from my students, again, Ukrainians know how to deal with the winter, as do the Russians, you know, we, we live in colder climates. The students are very well equipped, whether it's stuff that they receive from volunteers or, or things from the military, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. The, the volunteer output here is incredible absolutely dwarfs the the public support that the russian military has and even further dwarfs the support that you know the british military has from the public uh ukrainian volunteers provide wood-burning stoves to the bunkers on the front line they provide warm equipment you know warm stocks warm clothing uh and i'm i'm Contrary to the propaganda, and you definitely see it from the Russians. Not again. Not saying that the Russians aren't equipped. You, you will definitely see Russians with winter gear. They they get it some way or another. But the Ukrainians definitely get it a lot more. What I see personally from the students that I interact with, they they're well equipped, and they're being provided it. Again, I, I don't I don't. Although I work with the Ukrainian military, I'm not serving as a soldier there at the moment, so I wouldn't know the individual equipment that a soldier gets issued. But honestly, if it's exactly If it mirrors or is exactly the same as what we were issued prior to the full-scale invasion, it's absolutely fantastic. It's actually more winter equipment than I got issued in the British Army, which which says something.
3: Well, thank you so much, uh, Dan, for answering all of our questions. Thank you very much, Dom and Joe, for your questions too. Let's go to our final thoughts because we've got one eye on the clock now. And, Dan, when we come back to you for the very final thought, if there's anything we haven't spoken about that you think is really important to mention, do mention it there. So, Joe Barnes, can I go to you first?
1: Yeah, I just want for my final thought to look at something and talk about something about the donation of the shells to Ukraine. So last night, the MOD, that's Britain's Ministry of Defence, shared a tweet with a video saying, you are the company you keep. North Korea is on track to join Iran, Belarus, as the biggest arms suppliers to Russia. And that sort of got me thinking, is the West really pulling its weight, living up to the re- their rhetoric, putting their money where their mouth is? And actually, I think not. So North Korea has has given, donated, sold, we don't know, uh, about one million shells to Russia since August. That is according to South Korean intelligence, published via CNN and other reputable outlets. But then you actually look at what Europe is doing for Ukraine in terms of 155mm artillery shells, which are probably, Dan might have a thought on this later, the most important aspect of this war so far. The EU said it had planned to get one million shells to Ukraine by March, To date, that scheme has delivered about 300,000-ish shells, and EU defence ministers, including the German, have acknowledged this target to get one million shells to Ukraine by March 2024 is not going to be hit. So it leads me to sort of say it's all well and good calling out North Korea, Iran, or whatever rogue state, uh, hermit nation, despot is helping Russia. But is that really enough? probably not russia will be able to turn its advantage in numbers supplies even if that is quantitative and not qualitative into battlefield advantages Um that's just not good for, sort of news for ukraine and so i haven't heard from the british for a while about whether they've sent 155 millimeter artillery shells or what they're doing um those press releases have seemed to have gone quiet i know a lot of stuff is done sort of under under the radar because they don't want to release various information for national security reasons but like yeah while well, while the the storm shadow is a great bit of and being used great, greatly by the Ukrainians. Um, maybe we're ignoring some of the most important elements that will help sort of Ukraine hold its ground on the battlefield, and that's the 155mm shell. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Joe.
0: Don Nichols. Thanks, David. So Putin has used the W word. He was speaking to reporters in Moscow yesterday and said our goal is not to spin the flywheel of military conflict, but on the contrary, to end this war. Now, you may remember using the word war to describe the Ukraine well, war has effectively been illegal in Russia since March when Putin signed a censorship law um, that makes it a crime to disseminate fake information about the invasion with a penalty of up to 15 years in prison for anyone convicted. Uh CNN are reporting today that Nikita Yuferev, who's a, a municipal lawmaker from St. Petersburg who had to get get out of Russia due to his anti-war stance, he's been speaking on Twitter today, and he has asked Russian authorities to prosecute Putin for spreading fake information about the army so uh, so far, so so uh, amusing blah blah blah, let's see what, let's see what happens. You know, the point is, was this a mistake, or was it the start Putin's start to reframe the war? particularly in advance of Russia's March presidential election. Now, if it's Putin trying to trying to ramp things up in a narrative term to shore up domestic support, that that might be one thing. But if he's trying to to ramp things up as a prelude to mobilisation, full mobilisation, because we know that his the partial mobilisation that he's done so far was extremely, extremely unwelcome by society, Fla- led to the flight of about a million, we think a million fighting age males. So he's been desperate not to go for full mobilisation, but but potentially they are, it might be moving in that direction. So was it a slip up? Or was it uh, was it the start of something else? We will uh, obviously keep that keep that keep our eye on that. But of course, the March presidential election is going to really start to impact every little aspect of what we uh, of what we see in terms of the Putin and the wider Kremlin and Russian sort of diplomatic initiatives. Thank you very much, Dom Dan. Thank you so much for all of your time. Thank you
3: for answering all of our questions. Would you like to have the very final words?
2: Yep, I'll just quickly jump off what Joe said. Uh, Yeah, the Russian military has proven for well over 100 years that quantity over quality has worked for them. It worked in World War II, it worked prior to that, and and it's, you know, had some effect in Ukraine as well. If uh, we do see a more widespread usage of Iranian or North Korean ammunition, yep, the quality might not be as good. Uh, Quality has never been a strong point with the Russian military anyway. Um, but they have a, a far greater quality. Uh, Belarus has a surprisingly uh, pretty strong uh, arms industry uh, production and building of, of military equipment. So if the Russians are able to acquire more of that that ammunition and that stockpile and that equipment, which they've begun to do and they've done quite effectively, could cause an issue for for europe and america especially as america tries to juggle two foreign wars and the supply of those two wars definitely going to be an issue something that we won't be able to compete with unless we sort of gear more into it which which people don't seem particularly keen on to do other than that yep thank you to having me on again good to speak to joe again and yep i'd uh, love to be back on again sometime and just continue to read information about ukraine i try to spend little time on twitter but if you read something on twitter just check it out because it's
3: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or we'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear and Tiffany Lai. And the executive producer.